Well, good morning uh, again. On Easter last week, we, we read together from Luke's account of what happened on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. And this morning, we're going to pick up right where we left off later on uh, that day. So let me read that for us. I'll read Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. It's printed in the order of worship if you'd like to follow along there. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? <laughs> and they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we talk about this story together, as we think about this, this thing that happened in the afternoon and in the evening on the day that Jesus was raised, that you would meet us by your spirit, that you would come alongside us like you came along those two on the road. Father, we, we just heard in the Old Testament lesson that you preserve the simple. And so we ask that you would help us not, not to be so proud that we can't number ourselves among the simple who need to hear from you. So meet us, Father, 
and give us what we need. Show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to tell you a story that I think Pastor Dan uh, has told at some point here at Covenant. I don't remember uh, exactly when, but he is away at men's retreat. And so that means that I get to tell this story again from my own perspective. Um, I don't think that I come out looking any better in my version of the story, but I'm going to try. So a long time ago, back in the, the mid-90s, Pastor Dan and I were roommates. We, we shared an apartment with a bunch of other guys, a big apartment, and we shared a large bedroom, Dan and I. And one day uh, I noticed a novel on his nightstand. I think it was a Tom Clancy novel. So I casually sauntered over to the nightstand and picked it up. I acted, you know, as if I was just uh, kind of checking the book out, seeing what it was about. But instead, what I did is flip to the last page, and I read the last line of that novel out loud to him. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was so mad at me. <laughs> and all I could do was kind of laugh like a hyena. It was the funniest thing in the world to me. And honestly, I wasn't so sure why he was all that mad. It wasn't like I had read the last page to him. I just read the last sentence to him, you know? Somebody said something to someone else, the end. Um, but then he told me why he was so mad. He was mad because at the place where he was in the story, one of the people that was mentioned in, those last, in that last sentence was missing and presumed dead. <laughs> so I ruined the huge twist in that novel. Uh, it still makes me smile to think of it. I don't uh, remember if he kept reading the book, but if he did keep reading that book, it is safe to say um, that the whole story read very differently <laughs> from that point on. And I thought about that this week as I was uh, reading through this story that we just read and heard together. I thought about it maybe not for the most obvious of reasons. Yes, Jesus, who was missing and presumed dead, revealed the plot twist to his friends that he was alive. But that's not all that Jesus did. He gave them a new way to read the whole story, a different way to read the story, a way that they had completely missed before. Jesus gave his friends and he gave us a, a way to read the story of Scripture so that it meets us exactly where we are so that we hear his voice in it, speaking to whatever it is that we're facing, speaking to whatever it is that we need in the present moment. Did not our hearts burn in us when he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And church, that is for us too. And I hope we can get a sense of that while we think about this story together. It begins, as Luke says, that very day. By that he means sometime probably in the late afternoon uh, of the day of Jesus' resurrection. If you were here last week, you might remember how Luke has told this story so far. It's pretty spare the way that he's told it. The faithful women of Galilee had gone to the tomb early that morning to care for Jesus' body. And that is, that is an important fact to remember. They, they hadn't gotten up that morning and taken spices and ointments to the tomb just in case Jesus was still dead. <laughs> they got up that morning to care for Jesus' body because they had seen him die. They had watched it. And they had seen from a distance exactly where his body was, and they fully expected to find his body right where it had been laid. They do not expect him to be raised even though he had told them more than once that that was what was going to happen. 
So they get there, these women get there, and they're met with this uh, wild, conflicting rush of unexpected surprises. The stone is rolled away, the body is not there. Two men in dazzling apparel appear and ask them, why are you looking for Jesus here? Why would anyone look for Jesus here? And so they rush back to the 11 apostles and, and all the rest who are with the apostles, and they tell them what's happened, and nobody believes a word that they say. Now, we don't know uh, exactly how many others were in that place at the end, hiding, mourning in grief in a locked room somewhere. Couldn't have been more than maybe 20 or so people. 20 people just trying to make sense out of the senseless, trying to take up the lost threads of their lives and figure out what's next. And two of them who were there decided if they were going to start whatever was next by just heading home. Two of them thought, let's just go home. We'll go, we'll go back to Emmaus. You know, staying in Jerusalem was probably a pretty dangerous thing, especially now that there were rumors flying all around the holy city and apparently a, a missing body. I mean, this did not look good to the Roman occupying forces who had put soldiers at the tomb, really to avoid exactly this kind of stuff. Maybe it would be safer back home, so they leave. One of them was named Cleopas. And even though the other one isn't named, my best guess is that it was a woman named Mary, his wife. John 19 tells us about a couple that had these names. John 19 tells us that Mary was among the women who stood at the foot of Jesus' cross while he died. And in their grief, they head home. Talking about everything that had happened. And then Luke slips it in just so casually <laughs> that you almost forget what a surprise it is. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And church, in that way, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Jesus is on the road with some disciples. He is just walking with some disciples. That is just about the most ordinary picture of Jesus in the Gospels. And for that matter, it is the dominant metaphor in Scripture for the life of faith. You and I, we walk with God. We, we follow Jesus. We walk with him. And I have to tell you that I'm glad for that. I'm, I'm very glad for that. I'm glad that Scripture does not picture the life of faith as running around all of the time and searching all of the time for the next mountaintop experience, the next super dramatic, life-changing thing that happens. I'm glad that Scripture doesn't picture faith that way because it's exhausting and it's weirdly intimidating. And that is not the way being a Christian is pictured in Scripture. I mean, as far as mountaintops go, as far as dramatic stuff goes, God can do whatever he wants in our lives and sometimes things happen. But from the beginning to the end of Scripture, the life of faith is most often pictured as simply faithful walking in the ordinary, every mundane, everyday mundane stuff of life. Just abiding and remaining and walking. Going to class. Changing a diaper doing that thing at your job that you can do now with your eyes closed that you don't even have to think about. And I think it's healthy. 
And probably for some of us, it is a little bit healing to be content with doing those kind of things in faith with God, just walking with him. And so he slips in beside these two as they walk. And then Luke mentions this other thing, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. (laughs) Now that is uh, interesting. When Jesus appears after his resurrection, something that's like this happens a lot. It appears that Jesus looks the same and also a little bit different, and it is disorienting to people. We'll see this next week as we read the end of this chapter together. That very thing happens. You know, you and I have never seen someone with our eyes that's gone through death and out of the other side of it into new creation. But I think if we did, it would be thrilling and scary and a little bit confusing. But, but I'm not sure that that's exactly what's happening here. I think something else is going on because of the way Luke puts it. The, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is a divine caper, if you'll let me put it like that. Jesus is doing something here, and he is doing it for effect. He is doing something for them, and by extension, he is doing it for us too. And that's for sure the case in what happens next. Jesus asks them a question for which he already knows the answer. (laughs) What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? You know, Jesus is not asking that because he needs information. He is asking that because he wants them to say it. He's asking that because he wants them to speak it out to him. He wants them to speak their agony and their grief and their disappointment and their crushed hope. He wants them to speak it out to him. It's another thing that happens throughout Scripture. God always is asking questions for which he knows the answer. It started all the way back in the garden with our first parents when they pretended to play God and and brought the whole world crashing down. And then like little kids, they tried to hide from God. Where are you, God says to them. Where are you? It's not because he didn't know. It's because he wanted to draw them out. It's because he wanted them to approach. It's because he wanted to draw them out in love. And God has been asking questions like that of people like us ever since. And we answer those questions and we ask some of our own in prayer. (laughs) That's a big part of what prayer is. Read the Psalms and you'll see. So he asked what they're talking about, and Luke says they they stood still looking sad. They're incredulous, and you can't blame them. And on top of that, their incredulity is completely justified, and the irony is completely thick, totally beautifully thick, when they ask him, are you the only person who was in Jerusalem over these last few days who doesn't know what happened? Are you the only guy that has no idea what's been happening? And I always feel like laughing when I read that Jesus looks at them with a straight face, and he says, what things? He's drawing them out. He wants them to say it. And that second question is enough. Everything tumbles out of them in a rush. About Jesus of Nazareth, they say, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, 
and word before God and all of the people and how our high priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned by death and they crucified him. And church, I don't think there's any way for me to overstate the importance of the next thing that they say in verse 21. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one. And now it's the third day after his death. And some of the women in our company amazed us. They came back with the story about angels and how there's no body there anymore. And Jesus responds to them immediately with the mildest, kindest rebuke. <laughs> oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe that all of the prophets have spoken. I love how Jesus frames their sadness. <laughs> and I love how Jesus frames their despondency and their lost hope. It's not the result of an intellectual deficiency. It's not like, oh, if you just knew a few more things, if you could just learn a few more things, then you'd be okay. No. <laughs> he says it's that their hearts are slow to believe. And I got to tell you, if there is a more accurate description of me at times in my life, then I surely don't know what it is. Slow of heart to believe. I mean, they know the story. They know the story like the back of their hand. They know all of the promises that God had made to his people. But what they don't have yet, what they don't have is a belief in Jesus as the one in whom the story finds its fullest and truest and most beautiful meaning. What they don't have yet is a belief that Jesus is the one who is the yes to all of those good promises of God. You can hear that they don't have that yet in their own words. He, he was a mighty prophet, they say. And of course, of course they had that right. I mean, people knew that Jesus was a prophet pretty early, like back in Galilee on week one. If you heard Jesus preach, if you watched him heal, only the stoniest of hearts would say, that guy's not a prophet. <laughs> of course he's a prophet. There's this great story back in, in Luke 7 where Jesus asked the crowds who have come out in throngs into the wilderness to see him. He asked them, have you come to see a prophet? Well, of course they had come to see a prophet. And Jesus says, a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. And that's what those two on the road and everyone who followed Jesus to the end Everyone who was still in that locked room, that's what they had come to believe, that he was more than a prophet, that he was the king. He was the king who they believed would redeem them. That's what they believed, that he was Messiah, that he was the world's true, rightful, and final king, the one who would set everything right, the one who would redeem them. And they had that right too. But in a million years, in a million years, they would have never dreamed that the world's true king would redeem them by his suffering and death. In a million years, in a million years, they never would have dreamed that the world's true, rightful, final king would deliver them from their enemies by dying at the hands of their enemies. Never, never would they have dreamed that. Because that's not what a king does. The world's true king does not lose. He wins 
And that's why they're so sad. We thought he was the one, but obviously we were wrong. And Jesus takes aim directly at that when he says, he asks this incredible question, was it not necessary that the Christ, that the world's true king should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And church, I want to tell you that those women who had come to the tomb early that morning expecting to find a body, and those two who were with Jesus on the road that day, and every one of those scared disciples that's locked in a room somewhere in Jerusalem, I'm telling you, every single one of them would have heard that question from Jesus and said, no, no way, it's not necessary that he would suffer because that's not what happens to the true king. That's not the story. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all of the things concerning himself. Jesus tells them the whole story again. The whole story of God and his world. And while he tells that story, he draws up all of the threads, all of the threads of that story, and he weaves them in together into a tapestry that is as shocking as it is beautiful. He weaves them together into a tapestry that is as scandalous as it is healing, because it is a picture of a God who gives himself in love, a God who gives everything to redeem a wayward people and to recreate a broken world. He weaves for them a tapestry in which the cross is central, not some tragic end. It's actually the beginning point of a whole new creation. He draws this picture for them of a place called the place of the skull, where prophet and priest and king come together in the person of Jesus for their good and for the life of the world forever. And while he is telling them this story, their slow hearts begin to turn into burning hearts. The story of scripture, which is the story of the lavish self-giving of God, meets them precisely where they are. It meets them exactly where they are. It speaks to their specific pain. It speaks to their specific sadness. It speaks to their specific joy, their specific hopes. And I know, you know, I know sometimes when we hear this story, we read this story, we hear it preached, we hear it in a Sunday school class, you know, we think to ourselves, man, I wish I could have been there when Jesus did this. I, I wish that I could have heard what he said. And I get that. I wish I had been there too. But the point of Jesus doing it in exactly this way and the point of Luke telling us this story in exactly this way is to yell out to people like you and us forever, you are there. <laughs> you were there. You have the same story. And you have the same risen Jesus who still draws up beside people like you and me. When we read, when we hear, when we meditate on that story in the words of Scripture, church, listen to me. Jesus still slips up beside people like us on the road, and he meets us in our agony, and he meets us in our joy, and he meets us in our hope, 
and whatever else it is that we're going through, he still tells us over and over and over again on that road in an unending chorus that he will never tire of singing over us. It is by my wounds that you have been healed. And it's through my resurrection that you are raised into new life. And it is enough because it's everything. But in that moment, you know, <laughs> those two who are with Jesus, they're just a couple of folks with burning hearts. They haven't put the pieces together yet. The cross in that moment is still a scandal to them, a, a tragic ending to a story that got off the rails. A complicated one, a one that this guy they're walking with has really, really made complicated. So the divine caper continues. <laughs> Jesus fakes like he's going to keep walking. Of course, they won't let him do that. Stay with us, they say. Stay with us. For it's towards evening and the day is now far spent. I mean, what kind of a prayer is that, right? Stay with us. And slowly and intentionally... And naturally, just like he had planned, Jesus goes from being the honored guest at that meal to being the great host of that meal. Just like he had been the host in the upper room days before. Just like he will be the host here in a few minutes with us. He took the bread and, and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. <laughs> and then they recognized him in the broken bread. The bread of life. The living bread that has come down from heaven. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that we would be a people, that we would be a people who walk with you faithfully, who abide with you on the road, and who attend to this story, and who watch and wait and listen for the one who always comes in beside us, the one who is ready to hear whatever that agony is, whatever that pain is, whatever that joy is, whatever that hope is that we are harboring. Help us to look for him, to speak it out to him, and then to listen as he applies his work, his good, self-giving work to our life. Father, do this so that we will mature in the faith, so that we'll grow up in the faith, and do this so that we can slowly become a people through whom you can love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.